2: You know that whole thing about how there's two kinds of people? Okay, I'm going to do one of those, there's two kinds of people things. So, I think there's a lot of people who, they want to absorb the news, politics, culture, movies, television, books, pretty much as they are. In other words, they don't want to have to go to a movie and try to figure out what the hidden meaning of the movie is. And then there's another group of people who, in fact, see all of culture as this spider web of tripwires loaded up with various kinds of ancient meanings. And I'm kind of the latter kind of person. And and a word, a word for that is semiotics. Uh, It's a hard word to define. It's a scary word to use. Uh, We're going to have a very user-friendly conversation right now about the semiotics of everyday life. We're going to do a show today about something called semiotics, which are either... Unfamiliar with, even as a word, or I'm guessing mildly intimidated by, uh, and and let me say I think I know, given what age group you're in, uh, for factoring for what age group you're in, why you might find semiotics an intimidating topic. I, I think it intimidated a lot of Americans years ago when Umberto, Umberto echoes. Uh, novel The Name of the Rose came out. And it was sort of an it book. It was kind of pronounced a real it book uh, of its day and year. And then people tried to read it and they were having trouble with it. And then they found out that he was a semiotician. He was a professor of semiotics. And that there was a lot in the book that was sort of based on semiotics. And then they decided that that's why they didn't understand the book. And then they put the book down and they gave up. And when I say they, I mean me. However, I do think that there's other ways. Uh, let, let me just go to another novelistic source. semiotic statements and one that's a little bit easier to read. So in the novel White Noise, Don DeLillo uh, has a character. He's a former sports writer turned professor named Murray J. Siskin. And upon walking into a supermarket, he says in this kind of rapturous way to the other characters, Everything is concealed in symbolism, hidden by veils of mystery and layers of cultural material. But it is psychic data, absolutely. The large doors slide open. They close unbidden. Energy waves, incident radiation, all the letters and numbers are here, all the colors of the spectrum, all the voices and sounds— All the code words and ceremonial phrases. It is just a question of deciphering, rearranging, peeling off the layers of unspeakability. That's a pretty good description of what happens in semiotics. And it's absolutely the case that if you were to walk into a supermarket with a semiotician, And with a person who specializes in making supermarkets what they are, like deciding how to pile the avocados up, stuff like that, they could have a fascinating conversation because there's just an awful lot of hidden meaning and hidden intention in a supermarket. I should also say, before I introduce the guest, one guest today, he and I will be talking for the entire show, that this isn't the first feint we've made at semiotics, like just talking. I mean, our position is we do semiotics on this show. All the time, but we've on at least one occasion, one occasion, possibly one benighted occasion, made an attempt. I've made an attempt to really introduce it uh, as a topic. That was in October 2016, so it was about a week before the 2016 election, actually. And our good friend Ira Glass was on the show, and here's how that exchange went. No, what I wanted to ask you about is uh, this goes way back to your college days, but I did notice that you studied uh, semiotics at Brown. And I feel like that's one of the things that has been really fascinating about this election cycle, that there's this almost, you know, this semiotics type Sosurian quest to figure out what the heck is Trump saying when he uses (laughs) certain words, you know, and we're spending a lot of time trying to – it's like he's hacking away at the umbilicus between the signifier and the signified. And we're spending all this time – I can't believe you're pulling out semiotics. Like do you even think that the audience listening
0: knows – what you're talking about when you say sorcerian? Like, I would never say that stuff
2: on the air. Can Go we just Google talk about it that for a second. Is are people smarter in Connecticut? Oh, is Oh, there's that just the so thing? much. Everybody knows it. it's actually taught in the fifth grade. It's mandatory. Semi-anthropy, semi-anthropy. <laughs> uh, that seems un-American to me. <laughs> no, it's Derrida in the sixth grade. Uh, they learn. This it is all. the problem, my friend. This is the problem. We need <laughs> to be teaching English class, English literature. None of this far- American. Yeah. Anyway, so that didn't go so well. On the other hand, I wasn't wrong. I wasn't wrong about the way in which Donald Trump has really kind of disrupted meaning, right? He uses words in different ways. So, but let's bring in an expert instead of having me babble even more. Joining us right now is Marcel Danese, the author of, of Cigarettes, High Heels, and Other Interesting Things, An Introduction to Semiotics, now in its third
1: edition. Welcome to our show, sir. My pleasure to be oh. here. Yes. Let me start off by saying, however following up on the fact that most people think semiotics is an abstruse, abstract discipline. Mm -hmm. Well, so is mathematics, so is philosophy, so is chemistry, so is anything else, but we seem not to have any problems with that. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, all these disciplines put together deal with fundamentals of Semiosis of meaning-making, words, symbols, and signs. So my goal in writing this book, which goes back about, I guess, 20 years now, was to show people that a simple scene, people out on a date in a restaurant, and alluding also to the fact of that grocery store Mm -hmm. scene, is laden with meaning, and that we absorb these meanings, but don't filter them. And referring to Donald Trump, that's exactly what happens there. He hits the unconscious, as any orator can. Um, this was also noticed, by the way, by Machiavelli <laughs> in his Prince, who was able to decode the discourse of politics and show how it was deceptive at best. And, of course, truth is not where the action is. Meaning is where the action is. So you know, I want to get
2: at st- at the thing that you just referred to from your book. So, right. and it's there yeah. in the t- in the title of your book. So, yeah. your yeah. book returns repeatedly to this kind of vignette where it's eight o'clock yes. on a Saturday night. There's two yep. cool-looking people, both in their late twenties. They're yes. they're at a trendy restaurant, and a series of things happen. And one right. of the things happens that happens is they go outside and they both have cigarettes. Hence, hence the title. And so I have yeah. to tell you, I don't know whether our producer Jonathan McNichol, told you this or not, but we. Uh-huh tried to do a show about about mm. this very thing. We didn't know that you existed at the time. And I, <laughs> I, I wanted to do a, a show about the way the symbolic significance of smoking has radically changed over time, that certainly yep. in the time of Casablanca, it was just this thing, this very cool thing that cool people did. And and then as yeah. more information got out about smoking, it, it lost that specific meaning. At least it lost it some of the time. And that meaning was replaced by other kinds of meanings. So, yes. so maybe we can talk a little bit about this, because it, it is one of the first things you deal with as you look at this hypothetical couple. So, so what's going yeah. on for you if they go out and they each smoke? And they smoke a slightly different way
1: in your book, too. Okay. I First, we'll start with a counter-argument to the idea that survival is all that human beings are interested in. In part, that's true. But cigarettes, what does a cigarette have to do with survival? This is a subtext of an ongoing debate right now in cognitive science. Mm -hmm. I'll put that on the side and then look at the cigarette itself. You can trace pretty well the modern history of the United States according to the meanings that the cigarettes have had from about the 1920s to today. Just Mm -hmm. think of the uh, advertising for Virginia Slims, Mm -hmm. which is cigarettes, women don't smoke, the instant that they did, they imbued that act with power, political subversive power. Let's work to the 1950s where teenagers uh, smoked all the time to show coolness or whatever you wanted to call it. And it was a kind of performance of a courtship ritual. The boys smoked, the girls Timidly did, and there was a kind of nonverbal conversation going on through that prop of the cigarette. And yes, the movies: Casablanca, Rebel Without a Cause, uh, ironic movies. Caddyshack, I think, is one of them.
0: I invented my own kind of grass too. Do you know that? Look at this. This is registered. Carl Specker bench. Oh yeah, I've I, I felt grass like this before. I've played on this. This is a hybrid. This is a cross. Uh, uh, bluegrass, Kentucky bluegrass, uh, featherbed bench. And uh, Northern California, Sensimia. The amazing stuff about this is that you can play 36 holes on it in the afternoon, take it home and just get stoned to the bejesus belt that night on this stuff. Sir, let's have a little bit of this. I get a big Bob Marley joint. Watch out for this. Well, mm-hmm. Maybe one drive how I got a go It's a little harsh. (laughs) Now,
1: what the semiotician will say is that, no, the meanings have not dissipated. They've morphed into a different structure. Let me explain. When people smoke outside together, outside of an office, outside of a... They are bonding together very much like 1950s teenagers and carrying on a type of nonverbal discourse. We're cool. We are going against the norms. We stand out some will call them marked people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they are interesting. They are attractive. They are part of a historical flow where the cigarettes has meant artists. It has meant actors, and on and on and on. So those meanings, those historical embedded meanings, which semiticians call connotations, are where the mind exists at the unconscious level. So a cigarette is, <laughs> is much more than a cigarette. It has within it. It's a sign, and it, it is connected to a sign system, which is the, the larger sign system of culture.
2: Although I would say that in culture now, what's happened is because, in fact, there has been a, a morphing of meaning and because, in fact, you know, yeah, so the cigarette has, has taken on different connotations. If you see a character smoking now in a movie or a TV show, typically they're either A, a villain, or B, somebody whose life has gone off the rails. And sometimes this is actually sort of used as a signifier within plot, right? That yeah. somebody, oh, totally. some, somebody starts smoking because they've endured some kind of trauma that they haven't successfully recovered from. So they're doing a thing that they probably wouldn't ordinarily do and they
1: shouldn't be doing. It's a thing you shouldn't be doing. It's outside the norm. Yeah. yeah, it's outside the norm. Sure, it's right on. If It manifests itself in the opposite pole. You use the word signifier. The best way to look at it this way is a form. The form is either off and on, <laughs> left and right, up and down. Right now, it's on the other pole, not the up or the down, but somewhere in between but it never loses its meaning and have you know just ask yourself look I'm not a smoker I dislike smoke uh, getting into my lungs it's dangerous I know it all Mm -hmm. but when you see Rick's Cafe in Casablanca take away the cigarette from that movie and it just will crash semiotically it'll have very little meaning because the speakeasies the early nightclubs were cigarettes sex music, the forbidden, interacted textually to a, a glimpse into the human mind and its relationship to others, well, without the cigarette in those movies, it would not come across in that way.
0: Sorry, sir. This is a private
1: room. My oh, folded nerve. Who do you think? I know there is gambling in there. There is no secret. You dare not keep me out of here. Yes. What's the trouble? Uh, these gentlemen. I have been in every gambling room between Honolulu and Berlin. And if you think I'm going to be kept out of a saloon like this, you're very much mistaken. Uh, uh, excuse me, please.
0: Hello, Lord. Your cash is good at the bar. What? Do you know who I am? I do. You're lucky. The bar is open to you. This is outrageous! I shall report it to the angry!
2: So I want to talk about words because uh, so much of what you do uh, does involve words. And I'm going to uh, pick a particular word and I I think we can sort of play around with it in an interesting way. And I think also apply your basically three rules of semiotics, which we'll we'll go over. So one of the things that's happened a lot here in America is the the word chaos being used to describe the shape of our government. And so you've got these three rules when you look at a meaning. There has to be an ancient root. There also has to be a way in which the word or the the signifier the sign is part of the playing field about what's normal, and also that its meaning has to be conditioned somehow by cultural upbringing. So let's go through that, because I think chaos is an interesting word in in
1: that sense. I mean, it certainly has an ancient root, right? Yes, in fact, it's a mythological root. Chaos was a god Mm -hmm. who, um, in many of the myths, especially the Greek myths, upset the whole world order. Order (laughs) came by to set that chaotic world order into categories, and that's language. Uh, There's a subtext here in those old mythologies. How do we organize the world around us? Well, we come up with categories, uh, little boxes in which we put things, both physically, in the case of a room, I guess, put them in little drawers and things of that nature, but also conceptually. So words do classify the world around us. Now, the word chaos in our mind um, tells us that there is uh, well the image that comes to mind is of disorder. <laughs> <laughs> That's the opposite of chaos. This um, order. So, ca- order is disorder, which is chaos, which takes on the form of something mighty, mythological, and therefore dangerous. That's why the word chaos is much more powerful than the word disorder. It's much like calling a hurricane by a name, (laughs) calling it Katrina. It has more resonance than just calling it a perturbance that had this degree of intensity. Got it. In other words, the word itself encapsulates a mythological substratum, a power behind it, that, well, literary critics call it pathetic fallacy. We can blame the gods, whether they exist or not, and, and in some way and in some form have vindication that we can win. You can win a war against chaos. You cannot win a war against disorder.
2: Right. Although, no, as we go into that kind of normative part of it, here's the argument that I would make, that one of the f- flawed assumptions is as made by the news media and by pundits and anybody else kind of using chaos in this way is that people are automatically, intrinsically, and viscerally opposed to chaos. And, and I, you know, if you think about culture, I mean chaos is often a source of entertainment I mean I, I know you're a fan of Peanuts for meaning the book Snoopy and yeah. Lucy Snoopy and Lucy are bringers of chaos <laughs> and they're fundamentally more entertaining than Charlie Brown uh, if yeah. you watch the Muppets I mean Muppet history could be framed as one small frog attempting to find order in a world otherwise driven by chaos because most of the Muppets <laughs> are very chaotic and, and if you know the movie Die Hard Hans yeah, Gruber sure Hans Gruber is trying to enact an orderly heist. One that has been meticulously planned by him. And John McClain, uh, the character played by Bruce Willis, has only chaos as his weapon. He is introducing chaos as a way of kind of disrupting this plan.
0: I thought I told all of you I want radio silence until oh, further. I'm d- very sorry, Hans. I didn't get that message. Maybe you should have put it on the bulletin board. But I figured since I waxed Tony and Marco and his friend here, I figured you and Carl and Franco might be a little lonely, so I wanted to give you a call.
2: How does he know so much about this? This
0: is very kind of you. I assume yes, you are our mysterious party crash. You are most troublesome for a security guard. Eee. Sorry, Hans. Wrong guess. Would you like to go for double jeopardy, where the scores can really change? Who are you then?
2: Just the fly in the ointment, Hans. The monkey in the wrench. The pain in the ass. So the notion that we don't like chaos, that we want chaos to go away, I think that's questionable. I think that's an assumption okay, people are making me, about that word.
1: Yeah, go ahead. Let me elaborate. Yeah. Every single narrative has a middle part called chaos. Mm-hmm. It starts off with order as seen as given, and then it's upset. But it has to be set aright in order for things to end, the denouement. So it's not that you know, people fight against order. it is part of the human condition. Um, The way we narrativize it is to conquer chaos. Throughout history, um, we have tried everything possible politically, but even more importantly, artistically and linguistically to conquer chaos. On the other hand, you're absolutely right, the Mm poem— The origin of the poem, not of poetics, because poetics is how we think metaphorically and figuratively. But poetry is by its very nature transgressive, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It just takes images and shoots them all over the place and allows the human mind, us, the interpreter, and this is a very important aspect of semiotics, to put it together. Now, the interesting thing of semiotics for me, I'm trained as a linguist back and I became a professor in 1972. Linguists need order all the time. They need rules. They need structures and forms. What liberated me was that semiotics allows us you and I, to disagree on things and, and yet say and work around that theme in a meaningful, interpretive way. You know, there's no any one interpretation of the preludes and fugues of Bach. There isn't. There are many interpretations, and you and I are going to accept one or the other. The point is that those, the range of those interpretations does not vary. No matter how much the semiosis is infinite, it eventually revolves around a core. Now, finding that core is beyond me, and it's beyond anyone. It can be in the realm of philosophy, of religion, perhaps science, but leave it alone, because then you're becoming a prophet, and that scares the heck out of me. Because some semioticians have have kind of strayed into that domain of, I'm going to interpret the world for you. You can't. What you can do is present an interpretation based on, Hopefully those three principles that I talked about and then we discuss them just as we're doing now.
2: All right. So we're going to uh, grab a quick break here. We're talking to Marcel Denizi, uh, author of, of Cigarettes, High Heels and Other Interesting Things, An Introduction to Semiotics. He's joining us from Toronto uh, and we will be back after this. What does it all mean? What does it all
0: mean? Symbols are a language that can help us understand our past. As the saying goes, a picture says a thousand words, but which words? Interpret for me, please, this symbol. First thing that comes to mind, anybody.
1: Hatred, racism. Kukrux plan. Yes,
0: yes, interesting. But they would disagree with you in Spain. There they are, robes worn by priests. Now, this symbol, anyone?
2: Evil. La fourche du diable.
0: In English, please. Devil's pitchfork. Poor, poor Poseidon. That is his trident, a symbol of power to millions of the ancients. Now, this symbol.
1: Madonna and child, faith, Christianity.
0: No, no, it's a pagan god, Horus, and his mother, Isis, centuries before the birth of Christ. Understanding our past, determines actively our ability to understand the present. So, how do we sift truth from belief? How do we write our own histories, personally or culturally, and thereby define ourselves? How do we penetrate years, centuries, of historical distortion to find original truth? Tonight, this will be our
2: quest. That, of course, is from the movie The Da Vinci Code. You're listening to Tom Hanks as uh, Robert Langdon, the symbolologist uh, who Dan Brown, the novels, invented, uh, talking about how symbols can actually be pretty fungible. I mean, a robe might look like the KKK or it might look like the robe of a uh, very benign priest in Spain. Uh, a pitchforky-looking thing it could be the devil or it could be the god Poseidon, so, so forth and so on. Uh, joining us now, uh, a part of this conversation, the heart of this conversation, uh, our guest, Marcel Dene, Uh, author of of Cigarettes, High Heels, and Other Interesting Things, and Introduction to Semiotics. So there's a lot in that clip, but you know what? I think where I want to go, I think what I'd like to talk to you about is, I remember when that movie came out, when the book came out and the movie came out, and some interesting things happened after that, which was that an awful lot of people who maybe had been raised a, a very observant Catholics in particular, I think, were suddenly confronted with the idea that there might be these sort of counter-narratives. There might be uh, Gnostic uh, narratives that were really different from what they've been told, that, that Everything that they had understood in the Bible and in their catechism as a static truth was, in fact, much more slippery and malleable. There might be other things that they hadn't been told. You know, I mean, name it. Uh, excuse me, uh, the, the Da Vinci Code posits this very different narrative about Jesus, uh, and it kind of blew their minds. But in a way that I think made them a lot kind of happy rather than sad. <laughs> it was like, really, there's more to this, right? I mean, yeah, it was a very yeah. revolutionary thing to say in pop culture, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. A, a couple of comments first um, about the Dan Brown and his use of the word symbologist. I've noticed that in his more recent work, especially Origin, he uses the word semiotician. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so someone must have said, come on, uh, there's no such thing as a symbologist. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I mean, you can study symbology, but uh, the ones who studied are, are semioticians. So that's number one, which is nice to see, by the way. Mm-hmm. Number two, um, mm-hmm. You mentioned something. In that clip, he noticed, he, he presents a certain uh, signs, symbols, and so on, and says you, you've got to understand that at a certain time and in a different place, they mean different things. That's the crux to meaning. It's called the context and the code. Let me give a, a, a really banal example. I think I give it in my book. Mm. If you were to run, uh, if you would see a, an empty soup can on the street, you would come by. What's its meaning? Well, you would say it's garbage. Someone didn't throw it in the uh, garbage can. It's waste. Now, I come by, pick up that soup can, put it on a pedestal in a museum of modern art, and sign it as waste. Your mind is going to say, oh, you're imitating Andy Warhol. Mm-hmm. I get it. That soup can, the same object as Peirce called it, changes its meaning its interpretant, to use his word, depending on the context in which it occurs. But the context is not just physical. There's a code behind it. If a child were to see that soup can in a a gallery on the street, that child would not uh, interpret it in any other way as a soup can. Period. Mm -hmm. Done. Game over. To understand that it could be a work of art, a representation, a symbol of something, you have to understand the code behind it. Dan Brown does a, does a, a, a very interesting, uh, play on that. He calls it the Da Vinci Code. It's a hidden code. So he plays on the mystery of codes, cryptography and cryptanalysis versus the semiotic code, which is the meaning of things within, um, elements of, of a society. So in a sense, that is a lesson in semiotics without really using the terminology of semiotics. That's been my goal my whole 45 years of teaching. (laughs) Well, there's a a Swiss kind of brands theorist named
2: Clotaire Rapai who talks a lot about codes and that, you know, he basically says you can't sell something to people if they don't have a, a code for it. They don't recognize it. Nestle hired him to sell coffee to the Japanese. And in those days, they just, coffee didn't mean anything to Japanese people. They actually had to kind of implant a code because coffee wasn't. Wasn't really a meaningful thing but I, I yeah. wonder how you feel about just stay with Dan Brown sort of for a second here and say you know yeah. we, we live in a less and less believing society I mean Americans tend to be religious and believers like way out of proportion to the, most of the rest of the Western world um, but I feel like we have all those codes still in us. I mean, even people who describe themselves as secularists or atheists or humanists yep. or whatever. So, I mean, one of the things that I'm, I'm always on the lookout for are Christ figures. And I just saw the most recent Mission Impossible movie. There's just no question in my mind that Tom Cruise as Ethan Hunt is a, a Christ figure in this movie. Uh, I used to watch a show called Friday Night Lights where there was this uh, fullback named Tim Riggins who was a Christ figure.
0: Coach is always talking about... Uh one team and one heart. To be honest with you, I I thought it was stupid. Fact is, he's right. He's right. Everybody in this room knows who, where we get our heart from.
2: People think that the character Locke and Lost is a Christ figure. But I think there's probably a lot of rebellion against that among people who think of themselves as atheists and maybe love a show like Lost. And they go, he's not a Christ figure. I don't even believe any of that. But I would assume it doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. You have some programming that is going to make you notice certain things that are part of your kind of symbol code.
1: Yes. And, you know, the interpretation could be wrong. Uh, I mean, I I, I look at Blade Runner. I used to use that movie – Ah, uh, the original Blade yep. Runner yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, to teach some parts of semiotics. It's filled with semiotic notions, uh, and of course, religious symbols and themes of what is what is a human. Um, is a robot? Can a robot ha- take on human qualities? In the end, we really the end of it is is that a, a robot may have all the programs, all the schemas to think, to cognate like a human, but cannot feel or interpret the world like a human. That's where probably mechanical systems break down.
0: You're reading a magazine. You come across a full-page nude photo of a girl. Is this testing whether I'm a replicant or a lesbian, Mr. Deckard? Just answer the questions, please. Would you step out for a few moments, Rachel? She's a replicant, isn't she? I'm impressed. How many questions does it usually take to spot one? I don't get it, Tyrell. How many questions? 20, 30, cross-referenced. Took more than a hundred for Rachel, didn't it? She doesn't know. She's beginning to suspect, I think. Suspect? How can it not know what it is?
1: So, it really comes down to a science of interpretation. Now, you'll say, how the heck can anything be reduced to interpretation? Well, it can't. Um, but on the other hand, if you look at art, if you look at science... Okay, let, let me let me digress a little bit, if you don't mind. Sure. I'm going to come up with an equation from an ancient source. Here's the equation. C squared equals A squared plus B squared. Now you look at that. Mm-hmm. And you say, the heck is that? It's the Pythagorean theorem. It's the Pythagorean theorem. So at first blush, you'll say, oh, I get it. That's the first interpretation, by the way. Oh, and what does the Pythagorean theorem mean? Notice the word mean. Well, it's uh, a way of organizing certain observations about a certain type of triangle um, and the relationship of the lengths of the sides of a right angle triangle. Okay, I I get it. In other words, it has organized knowledge for us. Mm Yes, it has. It's now almost a code, isn't it? Leave it at that. Now, little did perhaps Pythagoras and others know that from that theorem have developed all kinds of new theories of the world. From that theorem, one of them is Fermat's last theorem, which has led to enormous work in mathematics, which then has spilled over into physics, and God knows how many other areas. In other words, our signs and our symbols, our forms of representation may pack so much information in them at an unconscious level, which is, I think, where your question was going, mm-hmm. that we're not aware of it. Now, we do have some psychologists that have come up some pretty interesting explanations. Carl Jung mentioned that we have an, a collective unconscious in which our symbols of a, of a very primordial nature. That he called them archetypes. Those are images that then come out and play out in different forms ar- across different cultures. Not bad, mm-hmm. but then the next question is, why are they there? <laughs> <laughs> that's where everything breaks down. And that's where at, at semio- semiotics does not look for truth. It looks for meaning. Mm-hmm. Now, <laughs> meaning and truth may coincide, but not necessarily. Scientists look for truth. Um, I don't know, maybe even religious people look for truth. Semioticians look for meaning, and I think scientists do as well. When their meaning structures break down, they eliminate what has happened before. Nobody believes that the, I think, (laughs) that the Earth is the center of the universe any longer, but they did up to the 1500s, and it worked well. As a system of science, people navigated with it, people um, developed narratives about it and on and on. Then it changed and we shifted. We're dealing with some of the questions that I think we will never be able to to answer.
2: So I, there might be some people listening who are thinking, "Wow, this is getting way over my head. I'm, I'm not quite sure I'm going to be able to understand this." So I'm going to drag us back down to earth. I'm going to drag us back down to the gritty world of politics, where I think semiotics just goes on all the time. I mean, they're just, uh, and I'm going to give you a case study, uh, and this is probably going to be new to you because you live in Canada, um, and it'll be new to some people because it happened a few years ago. So I'll, I'll contextualize it first. Uh, I think it was 2006. There's a guy named George Allen. He's running for uh, U.S. Senate. In in Virginia, uh, as is the case with American campaigns, uh, his his opponent had sent after him a tracker—that somebody who follows him around with a video camera, just videoing everything he says, just in case he says something that's actionable or usable in a negative commercial or something. And I mean, George Allen's campaign had done the same thing to the other guy. This guy who was following George Allen around was an American citizen, American-born citizen, but of South Asian descent, and a, a young guy who looked uh, South Asian. Uh, and so George Allen, at a certain point, got, uh, well, kind of called him out at a rally in a small Virginia town. And you're gonna hear him do that, and then you're gonna try- hear him explain to a now deceased newsman named Tim Russert uh, what it was he was doing, and then we'll talk a little bit more. This fellow here
0: over
1: here with the, the yellow shirt, Macaca or whatever his name is, he's with my opponent. And let's give a welcome to Macaca here to
2: America and the real
0: world of Virginia. And here's the young man, S.R. Siddharth. He's a resident of Virginia, an American citizen, straight A student at Fairfax High School, and now goes to the
2: University of Virginia. Critics say that macaque is a racist slur and that you used it because he was dark skinned. What did you specifically mean when you said, Welcome to America and the real Virginia? Why did you use those words toward a dark skinned American?
1: Tim, I made a mistake. I said things thoughtlessly. I've apologized for it as well. I should, but there was no uh, racial or ethnic intent to slur anyone. If I had any idea that 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 word, and to some people in some parts of the world, world was an insult, I would never do it because it's contrary to what I
2: believe well, where did who the I am come from. It must have been in oh, your just made up. It just made, made up. up. Okay, it must have been in your consciousness, Rustin says. No, I just made it up. So uh, what, what went further was, macaca is very close to the word macaque, which is a kind of monkey. Um, there uh, came out later, George Allen's mother was uh, French-Tunisian born, uh, probably would have known, uh, it was claimed anyway. I mean, this huge semiotic autopsy was done on this thing where it was suggested that his mother would have known that that was an insult. She was from North Africa herself and blah, 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 blah. Uh, and he was claiming, he just made up that word macaca. Uh, to, to address it. So, I don't know, as you're listening to that, uh, Marcel Danese, I mean, mm. you're, you're hearing uh, and questions about what, what is meant by the real America, the real Virginia, the word real also has uh, kind of a loaded up turn. I mean, this is a way in which your field
1: and politics coincide closely. There are arguments about meaning all the time. Absolutely. Let me give you something personal here. Uh, I was uh, born in Italy in 1946. <laughs> And I was brought over after the war in 1948. Um, fortunately for me, I say fortunately because I had blonde hair. Mm-hmm. Why? Because the real Toronto at the time was not in any way close to being what the Toronto is today. And when, you know, peers, my kids at school, r- realized that I was Italian, they used two epithets. Mm-hmm. One was WAP, <laughs> which was, a, you know, a, a, a slur.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And a, a worse one for me is they took my name, Marcello, and turned it into Marshmallow.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Also, you know, kind of taking a, a, a shot at my hair, which should have been different. Now, was this intentional or not? Was this part of consciousness or unconsciousness? Let me tell you that th- those kids that did it, whether they did it thinkingly or not, did it. Mm-hmm. Where it came from is almost irrelevant. it hurt it, um, it allowed me to understand that the, in- the environment in which I, I I was in was disconnected with the environment in which I thought I was in mm-hmm. okay the two were totally disconnected. So what I get from that there is that the one who used that word makaka mm-hmm. used it whether thinkingly or not with the designations that that word, has whether it was an intent to harm or not is really a moot point it harmed Mm -hmm. you know i if i carry a knife and i just all of a sudden take it out and unintentionally stop someone i don't know how that would occur (laughs) i stop someone Mm -hmm. period it's the end 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 of the game so I, i don't like the word stereotyping i don't like the word bias because this goes beyond it this is a way of really creating imagery Roland Barthes said it so well. Roland Barthes, sorry to drop this name, a famous semiotician um, who said that it's where the image is. He gave the example of a cat. If you see a cat in a newspaper, a picture of a cat, it means nothing. It it means a lot, actually. Uh, It's a a kind of incoherent meaning. But if you put a tagline below it, uh, as to say, friendly companion, it fixes the meaning. It narrows it down and allows you to use that meaning intentionally. That's what I get out of that interaction. And I think he became aware of it. Mm -hmm. And at the very least, apologized. I think that was a really um, courageous act to apologize because we, we live by our words. We live by our meanings. We have fought wars over meanings rather than economic <laughs> systems. Ah, we sure, we, we can uh, conquer for economics. But when the Romans uh, expanded their empire, the first thing they did was to make sure that everyone spoke Latin, perhaps in their own way, and developed a diversity of that language, but that established a community of thought. Without that, you're going to have, uh, <laughs> back to our word, chaos. Right. <laughs> well, and actually, for the Romans... Language is also a class marker because
2: even as they, as, as oh, yeah. they were imposing sure. the Latin yeah. language on their empire, yeah. th- their sure. upper echelons were speaking Greek to one yeah. another because that's oh, you, yeah. you had Greek tutors. And if so, yeah. just the way that yeah. Russians of a certain period spoke French to prove that they yeah. were uh, educated. I mean, language, you often don't use your own language when you want to prove that you're better than most people
1: or you use a different register of your own language to show that you're better than someone else, uh, which is <laughs> typically associated with professors in, in uh, <laughs> uh, a rhetorical question. But yeah, the the Romans had um, um, the, the noble families, the patricians, uh, hired a, uh, a nanny, a Greek uh, nanny, or male or female, to, uh, to teach uh, their children Greek first, because they knew that they could learn Latin in the streets, because they really thought that... <laughs> Greek, uh, the Greek language held much more profundity of thought within it. That's amazing if you think about it.
2: Right it's why we think that Caesar probably said something like kaisu technon not etu Brute." Uh, he probably said something yeah. like and you too child something like that yeah um, exactly. alright so we uh, have to take a break but we're going to keep talking about semiotics and we've got some I'm going to bring up Walter White and Breaking Bad that'll make you happy gonna, we have to take a break we're talking to Marcel Danese uh, author of, of Cigarettes, High Heels and Other Interesting Things an introduction to semiotics for a me, meaning every day did I wake up and what I look for? Well, I do
0: Today's show is produced by Jonathan McPants and me, Kion Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by Ira Glass. And now... Back to
2: Colin. All right. Right now, we're talking about semiotics. Uh, Marcel Denese is with us, the author of, of Cigarettes, High Heels, and Other Interesting Things, and Introduction to Semiotics. Now, in its third edition, uh, we've uh, got a limited amount of time, and there's two things I want to cover. One of them is, uh, you know, we you talked about how semiotics is a search for meaning as opposed to truth. But I wonder what you think about what happens when a culture is sufficiently divided so that uh, different segments of it extract radically different meanings from the same text. And I'll give you an example. So there was a show here in America, I'm sure it was up in Canada too, it was called Breaking Bad. It was about a a nebbishy high school chemistry professor who made the transition from that to kind of a meth lord. He was like this guy who, you know, really became this this maker uh, of methamphetamine and seller of methamphetamine and a pretty ruthless and twisted human being. And he kind of made, if we're talking about archetypes, the transition from being Charlie Brown, Kermit the Frog, David Copperfield, Jimmy Carter, People to whom things happen to to being the kind of person who makes things happen, bad things happen to other people, um, and and so I, in writing about this, described him as having turned into a monster. And in the comments I got about it, I was surprised at how many people didn't see it that way. That they really saw him as this kind of American Nietzsche, this kind of rugged self actualizer who made his own rules and was taking on the man.
1: Say my name. Do what? I don't- I don't have a damn clue who the hell you are. Yeah, you do. I'm the cook.
2: I'm the man who killed Gus Fring.
1: Now, say my name. Heisenberg.
2: You're goddamn right. And I thought, wow, (laughs) this man is so not heroic in any particular way. He's just like this horrible person. But what about that? I mean, maybe that's just typical of any culture, or or maybe we're so segmented that we could extract such radically different meanings.
1: I'm going to take a a bit of a different angle on Breaking Bad, which is one of my favorite shows, by the way. think Dexter as well, uh, mm-hmm. same kind yeah. of theme, and then the original story, mm-hmm. Dr., Mr., Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Yep. Hyde. The two natures of humanity, the good and the evil within us. One plays out at certain times, one at the others. The need for balance for heroism versus villainy is one of the things that we've always dealt with narratively and um, in, in, in art and in various other forms. Good versus evil, God the devil, um, Jekyll and Hyde playing out within us. So I saw Breaking Bad very much like you did. Uh, this is a monster, and the monster from Latin monstrare was a medieval term to show the evil within us that can take forms, that can take physical form. It can take spiritual form, and those medieval morality plays were always there to conquer and uh, the, uh, eliminate the monster. I mean, poor parents who were born with children that at the time were considered to be monsters, works of the devil, whereas today we see them, you know, as, uh, as having been uh, somehow um, mistreated by nature, if you like, and nature uh, can be uh, intervened with but through medicine and things of that nature. In other words, that dichotomy of good and evil is such a basic one because it's playing out within us. When it gets extrinsicated as a, a, a dichotomy between love and hate, which side are you going to be on? That's where the problem Orwell once said. <laughs> the truth of others is is considered to be hate or, or, or falsehood, whereas your truth is considered to be the, the correct one and on the side of justice. you got it. It, it is very it, it was a brilliant um, uh, show in my view, that played on the concept, the original concept of monster as um, a kind of evil within us that comes out in, in different ways, but tries in its own way to set things aright.
2: Right. And I think it is true that through our culture, cautionary tales are sometimes reappropriated in different ways. I mean, Faust was essentially initially a very cautionary tale, but Goethe as a romantic, you know, he thought Faust was sort of cool. It can be kind of cool to be Faust. And and I think we do that a lot in America. Um, We have cautionary tales about rich men who become lonely. Citizen Kane, the Great Gatsby, even Michael Corleone, you know, who's very alone at the end of The Godfather. But I think a, a lot of other people look at those things and go, that looks really great. I'd like to be that rich, lonely guy.
1: There's a bit of a difference difference in America. It's the American dream, which comes from <laughs> the colonial Protestant ethic that on this earth, you can achieve almost anything. I don't find that kind of mythology in many other cultures of the world. Uh, so there's a bit of a difference in America. It's a place where you can make it mm-hmm. on your own, where a citizen Kane can set things right without having any connection to history. America created its own history almost but, from scratch. But have
2: no no help in healing the primal wound that he's living with. That's you know? true. Yeah, that, he's, that's he's so, absolutely true. So, yeah. so I, one last yeah. question for you, Marcel Denezi. This okay, has been yeah. a, very, <laughs> a very fast hour. We're running out of time here. I, I love talking to you. Uh, by the way, the book, again, is of cigarettes, high heels, and other interesting things. And they are interesting things, by the way. This is uh, yeah. truth in advertising. An Introduction to Semiotics. Um You know, I I don't know if you have the same experience that I do, but I find there's some people who really don't like to go to the movies with me or watch a TV show with me because, like, I I am doing that kind of read, close read a lot on, like, I'll come out of Mission Impossible and I'll want to talk about uh, Ethan Hunt as a Christ figure. And most there's a aren't there a lot of people who just go, you know, I just want to go see a movie and I don't want to see this invisible web of interconnected tripwires of meaning. Uh, (laughs) Do you find that there's some people who just they, they just don't want this?
1: Let's start with my wife, um, and then <laughs> let's move down to my grandchildren, who, uh, especially my grandson, right. who said, Ah, oh, come on, no, no, cut it out, really. <laughs> actually, I should tell you about my grandson, who's yep. now 24. Um, he actually took the course in semiotics. Mm. Um, it's a large class, so its uh, um, I don't have to deal with his grades and so on. It's done by TAs. Mm-hmm. And he was extremely skeptical. So... <laughs> He has now a significant other, and I heard them, I overheard them talking. And he said, You gotta take my my grandfather's course. You'll learn things about advertising, how it's corrupting your brain. (laughs) (laughs) Boy, was I thrilled to hear that coming out of the mouth of my very own grandson, whom I. Absolutely adore, so yeah, it is yeah, I have to watch myself every once in a while. I do. Um, you know, sometimes as Freud said, a cigar is just a cigar, and I have to leave it at that. But I have to tell you that I sometimes when I go to the movies, I really go there to enjoy them, mm-hmm. but I come out of them saying, "Oh no, I've got to use this in my class." One of them was The Matrix. <laughs> I thought I was just going to have a nice science fiction movie, but oh, guess what? I saw so many things in it that I took it, and now I'm using it as part of the classes that I teach. So it's hard to be a semiotician <laughs> sometimes.
2: <laughs> but but I, I, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to live the other way. I feel like you, you miss—I mean, there are, actually, if you want a great movie scene, too, there's a moment yeah. in The Deer Hunter where Robert De Niro's character holds up a, like a rifle yeah. cartridge to John Cassell's character, and he goes— Stanley, see this?
0: This is this. This ain't something else. This is this. From now on, you're on your own.
2: And he's sort of <laughs> arguing against uh, yeah. this intuitive exploration for additional yeah. meaning.
0: Hey, you know your trouble, Mike con? Huh? Nobody ever knows what the f*** you're talking about. Huh? This is this. What the hell is that supposed to mean? This is this.
2: And, yeah. and there's yeah. that, that represents a, a very strong mindset here in America and probably in yeah. Canada, too. But it seems joyless somehow. You've got about a minute yeah. to respond yeah. to that.
1: Okay, listen, I agree with you totally. I think semiotics is an exercise in critical thinking, Mm. period. You know, psychologists have come up with theories of critical thinking. I have a blog for psychology today. I got attacked for showing puzzles as critical thinking. Ah, nonsense. Critical thinking means the idea to to, to say, this is for that. Mm. Once you just say, this is what it is you've got a serious problem. It's the that that counts in this case, the ability to connect things. It's a science of how we connect things in our minds and how we take meaning out of that... Really, I think we need that more than ever before in the history of, mo- of modernity. We need semiotics now. Sorry for saying that. <laughs>
2: no, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. And certainly, uh, you know, Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living. Well, the unexamined yeah. cultural and media environment is also not worth living. You should examine I agree totally. So, uh, Mar- Marcel Denizis, thank you so much for doing this today. It was an absolute pleasure, absolutely a privilege to be on. All right. And once again, the book is Of Cigarettes, High Heels, and Other Interesting Things, An Introduction to Semiotics. I want to give a special shout-out to the producer of this episode, Jonathan McPants, who, uh, it's fair to say that we struggled with how to do this, and we had these ideas of, like, other guests that we would have with him. And after a while, Jonathan said, no, just the two of you should just talk. (laughs) And he said, "That's this is basically what he's doing is basically what you do all day long anyway. And I think that was exactly the right. Sometimes the simple answer is the good answer, and we people— who, like complexity, would be well advised to remember that occasionally. All right, so we'll be back tomorrow with a very different kind of show. Thanks for listening to this one.